Hello, welcome to episode three of Confessions of a Wee Timorous Bushy. I'm your host, Menion, also known as Rob. Let's get the show on the road. So it's Wednesday lunchtime and I'm just walking north up um, Karasuma Road, which is one of the main roads that runs through Kyoto. And I'm heading towards Rokkaku Dori, which is another little road on an east-west. And uh, yeah, I've just been to the uh, printers to find out about the cost of cost of um, binding um, all the well, PDFs that I've been amassing over recent years, recent months, I should say. So I'm just going to cross the road here. I'm coming up to um, to a little temple that's quite famous. Anyway, uh, yeah, yesterday I got an email from um, the uh, book project Dice Men which is largely largely about um, the beginnings of uh, Games Workshop from 1975 I think to 1985 and uh, deals with uh, Ian Livingston Steve Jackson and the beginnings of um, well role playing in United Kingdom really so here we are at Rokakudo it's a um, old uh, temple. It's actually a hexagon shape, and it's said to have uh, been founded, um, well, originally founded, at least in legend, by uh, a uh, prince who was moving through this area, and he um, basically had a swim in the pond that once existed in this area, and uh, was so exhausted afterwards. That that he uh, fell asleep and uh, had a dream um, by Kannon, which is like a Bodhisattva. They, uh, you know, they sometimes refer to it as a, a goddess or something, but it's a, basically a messenger um, carrying knowledge and compassion um, um, and uh, showing the way to um, enlightenment. And uh, so he saw this Buddha in his dreams. And uh, after that, they decided to uh, build a temple here um, I think actually its history goes back to uh, just maybe the around the end of the first millennium and uh, one of the curious things about it other than the hexagon shape of the temple is that um, it's also the home for this area around here is the home of uh, Ikebana which is um, the Japanese flower arranging so that's just just a hop, you know, hop and a step from where I work, and uh, not far from here, just another fifteen minutes or so, where I, not far from where I used to live, um, is a is the well, from which the um, water was drawn by uh, no less than uh, Senorikyu, I think his name is Senorikyu. He's the the founder of uh, what is modern Japanese uh, tea ceremony. And uh, yeah, we sometimes go down there and pick up water. You know, you just leave a, a small donation just to keep for the upkeep of the well, and uh, use the same water that he would have used for his tea, um, for our tea. Although it would tend to be um, black tea, you know. Um, but I just thought I'd share you that share that a uh, little bit of history with you, as well as um, the exciting news that the book is underway. The uh, Dice Men 
to completely unrelated topics um, somehow mixed together uh, as I wander and yander along the streets of Kyoto. Anyway, um, that's it for now. I just remember the prince's name. It was Shotoku Taishi, um, Prince Shotoku. And he was of the imperial line, I guess. Um, and a very important figure, so I understand, in um, certain sects of uh, Buddhism here in Japan. Anyway, just another piece of uh, uh, information that you probably didn't want to hear. Hello Rob, it's Che. I've just finished listening to your first episode and uh, oh my goodness, you do have a soothing brogue and a fantastic voice for um, podcasting. And yeah, so well thought through and scripted. I really appreciated all the time you took to make that episode and I really enjoyed listening to you. And uh, I also just wanted to say thank you for mentioning Rob Lay Rescue as one of your, uh, the many podcasts that have influenced you, I guess. I just wanted to say thanks for that. that that warms my heart and I'm so glad that you've come back to the hobby and oh my goodness how many nationalities are you gaming with fantastic um it's everything that kind of warms my heart and excites me about this hobby it's when you know we get together and we play games with people we would never normally have an excuse to play with or to be with and oh yeah but by the way I get that you the introvert thing me too man anyway gonna stop blithering thanks so much game on it's G. That really means a lot. To me, it certainly is about games as a common ground. As with music or anything else, if you have a common interest, there's instantly this camaraderie that goes beyond words. Of course, to really make RPGs work, though, you do need those words. At a later date, I may talk about the difficulties posed by trying to role-playing in another language, at least for me. And I'd like to interview some of my friends from non-English-speaking countries about this as well. But as usual, I get ahead of myself. Something that occurs to me after doing the first two episodes is how this is an ongoing form of communication, even though we break it into clean, episodic parts. Is this the new age of the epistle, where correspondence is performed by the podcast rather than the letter? You read about pulp fiction, punk and the early RPG scene with their zines, and this seems to be a similar cultural phenomenon. I don't know, but I love the idea of producing stuff with people and for people who share the same common interests. A community. That's certainly something missing from modern life, or at least modern life as I've experienced it. My daughter is 19 this year, and she's leaving home. It all feels very Beatles. Luckily, as my wife and I face a massive change in our lives, we've both found new interests. Me, RPGs, and the missus, a music fan club. It's a bit like a second childhood for us, really. The wife, she's been pretty supportive about my getting back into RPGs and spending cash on loads of old and new books. And when I told her the other day that I'd started a podcast, she said it was really cool. When I returned, (coughs) excuse me, uh, when I returned to RPGs, my initial stop 
was the D&D brand in its spanking new 5th edition format. As I'm sure you know, it was a very different it was very different in presentation from 1st and 2nd edition AD&D, which are the versions I'm most familiar with. I won't go too much into my subsequent disillusionment with 5e, which may yet prove to be temporary, but suffice to say that my main issue issues relate to spell casting, the easy healing, and the near invulnerability of PCs. When I was at the Dak Osaka convention on Saturday, I don't think I saw one character go down that didn't get back up a few rounds later. Even in the Tomb of Annihilation, uh, which is meant to kill most PCs that enter it. Times have changed, and so has D&D. That's not a criticism. It's a matter of fact, and I must come to terms with that. Hopefully this helps to explain why I have been drawn back to early editions of D&D, and I'd like to discuss BX and AD&D in some detail later, but for now, I intend to consider the interesting ways in which gameplay seems to have changed as compared to back in the day. I'd also like to talk about the OSR, although I'm not sure I have much to add beyond describing how it gels with my current, as opposed to my original, experience of the old games. As with many of you, I think, I share a weakness in that I buy too many books, things that I'm not really needing at the time. After getting so much role-playing stuff last year, reaching a climax with Old School Essentials, Swords and Wizardry, and an original first edition AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide, I promised the wife that I'd cut back on spending in January. In my own defence, this being Japan, my purchases come from my pocket money, a monthly allowance from my salary, with the bulk of my earnings being reserved for the family. That may sound a little unusual for some of you, but it's quite a normal state of affairs here in Japan. I think it comes from the old custom of the samurai, or bushi as they're also known, um, avoiding money and leaving financial matters to their wives. In fact, in modern times, some Japanese still refer to their wives as the minister of finance. Anyway, it now being February, I did a sneaky one and bought three role-playing books. Uh, role-playing game books. The first one it was um, edition, first edition of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, a hardback. Another one was White Box, fantastic medieval adventure game. And finally, there was a reprint of the fighting fantasy game book classic, Death Trap Dungeon, which I'm always going on about on Twitter. Actually, um, I did actually get five books in total because I also purchased new copies of The Hobbit and The Silmarillion by J.R.R. Tolkien. The former, um, the former were, was actually um, the gateway for me into fantasy fiction. And the latter one, you know, The Silmarillion, was my first experience reading anything that um, resembled what you, might be, what you might call world building or pseudo mythology. I'll probably talk about all five of these books at some time or other. Um, but with the exception of the white box, they're all old books that I owned back in the day, and I really wanted to get to know them once more and see if they still hold any wonder for me. 
Rob, hail fellow well met. Uh, greetings from Conrad Kinch in Dublin. Uh, delighted to have you aboard. Uh, glad you like the title. And uh, I look forward to hearing more about the role-playing hobby in Japan and what exactly it consists of, what people do, and what sort of games they play. Because uh, having uh, travelled to other countries, I discovered that uh, gaming is not quite as it is in Ireland and often can vary uh, quite substantially country to country. So keep up the good work, uh, keep the episodes coming, and uh, looking forward to hearing more from you. Well done. Thanks for the message, Conrad. While I agree there are differences in how the game is played from country to country or language to language, I think these differences aren't dissimilar from those we see from town to town or generation to generation. Up until and including the early days of the internet, even playing with a different group in the same town often meant exposure to a very different gaming culture. And that's provided you could even find the other groups in town. As you probably know, the Grognard Files has explored this phenomenon in some detail, so I won't touch on it here. But to return to Japan, I was surprised how similar overall the experience of playing is. Obviously, the language barrier is a biggie. My second degree is in Japanese studies, and I've lived the language and the culture for nearly 20 years now. But the language of role-playing is something else. When I came here after university in my mid-twenties, the priority, for me anyway, was to learn to speak, read and write just enough to function normally as quickly as possible. Learning archaic expressions and words for dungeoneering certainly weren't high on my list. So by getting into the hobby, I've suddenly found myself having a very different um, list of or set of interactions with people. Naturally, this is a good thing because it's forcing me to leave my comfort zone and improve my Japanese. But it also makes me a little nervous and anxious. What if people don't accept me into their group? What if I'm inadvertently rude, which is always a massive um, worry for foreigners who start living in Japan? Um, worse, you know, uh, what if I can't fluently incorporate these newfangled role-playing game thingy-majigs like backstory and role-playing into the way I play, how I play the game? You know, what, what will new players think of me? In my earliest games that I got into last year upon returning to the hobby, the main difference in playstyle seems to have been more one of um, generational or system than anything else. For example, in my first 5e game, which was online, I carefully examined debris with a stick, and the Japanese DM laughed at my cautiousness, pointing out to the others who were new to D&D that I was old school. In another game, which used the house-ruled version of the classic D&D, I played an elf, and a younger player in his 20s was shocked when I cast sleep on a raiding party of orcs, then quickly dispatched them all with my sword before the spell duration ran out. My logic was simple, and so well rehearsed that I didn't think about it. Orcs and elves are bloody enemies, and I couldn't leave these raiders to wake up and continue their carnage. Later, upon reflection, I felt bad, but that's how I grew up playing the game. There was no room for error, and resources like spells and hit points were limited. If you got into a fight, 
you finished it quick. The final part of that adventure involved a tough mini dungeon that was full of traps and puzzles. We never cracked the dungeon and my PC ended up being killed by the younger player's character due to a cursed sword that circumstances forced him to pick up. Personally, I thought it was brilliant and I told the younger player not to sweat it, but I think it was a little too much for him. He was a player of a more modern and popular system <clears throat> and uh, presumably this didn't seem like winning or storytelling from his perspective or, you know, uh, in view of what he was used to uh, in other games. Well, I know that's been a bit of a long digression, but hopefully it conveys some of what I've experienced so far. Ultimately, that there seems to be more of a generation gap than a geographic barrier. I'm not certain I understand the reasons um, anywhere near clearly enough at this stage to suggest why this might be. Perhaps a more useful question is to ask whether these differences can be overcome. I see a lot of older gamers running games for their kids and students. So essentially it's possible to bridge divisions and create hybrid RPG cultures. Naturally though, like attracts like, and so people will tend to form more homogenous groups among their peers. As I've mentioned before, I'm currently running a first edition AD&D campaign in the world of Greyhawk, which I started in late spring of last year. We've only just clocked up about uh, nine sessions, as far as I can count, including one, uh, one session zero, my first one ever, and also an online exploration session done using Facebook, um, of all places, yeah, our group. One of the things that's exciting about this session, though, is that despite only meeting once or twice a month, the players are regular. Most of them had never played 1E before, and two of them are in their 20s. The players are from all around the world, and we play in English down in Osaka. Originally, we had a German man and an American woman in our group, too, but sadly, both of them had to leave due to scheduling difficulties. Many foreign nationals in Japan work as language teachers or in other parts of the service industry, so weekends are often a busy part of the working week for them. Our Greok group hasn't met since early December due to the holidays, and one of the members taking an extended break to his home country. In fact, this is the reason why we had our little Facebook session. It seems like forever, but finally this Sunday we'll be meeting for a new session. There's not a lot of prep to be done, as we've been playing the same module for almost a year. And accomplishing goals and tasks in this adventure takes a long time. We're playing Gary Gygax's Village of Homlet from 1979. I tell you, for just 17 pages, this module certainly does have much more potential depth than you might expect. I originally ran it as a simple hack and slash back in the late 80s or early 90s for an overpowered group of PCs, but this time it's different. The PCs of our Greyhawk group were generated using the rules from the DMG, not the later Unearthed Arcana, and so hit points are also random, 
although I did give players a fighting chance by awarding average hit points at first level for those rolling low scores on their hit dice. Unusually, I'm also adopting the weapon modification rules, whereby different weapons have different chances of hitting a given armor class. Because this system is really clunky, it was typically ignored back in the day. To overcome this, I've built a table showing each PC's chance of hitting with their chosen weapons, and I update this as necessary using it instead of the standard combat matrices. After nine or so sessions, only two of the four PCs have leveled up to level two, and leveling up costs money in this old Grognard's campaign. By modern standards, this is extremely slow, and you might think that the slow progress would have put off some of the players by now, but that doesn't seem to have happened. By adopting a strict interpretation of the rules from the beginning, but permitting freedom within the established parameters during play, what we've actually seen is a natural flourishing of the old school spirit as described by Matt Finch and others. Specifically, we're seeing tactics and case-by-case -case rulings coming into play. Because there isn't a healer in the party, healing after a tough fight can easily take a week and all fights have this potential or worse. Players are asking about the environment now and they're trying to use it to gain an advantage. They're also taking prisoners, they're talking to people, they're hiring followers and they're trying to avoid fights. This creates an emerging sense of reality and the characters seem richer for it. What's really fascinating to me is that I don't remember this happening back in the day. I think it's because we were already playing in what might be termed a 1.5 edition and beyond mindset that inev inevitably tended towards high stats and hit points in order to cook advantages into the game even before the adventure had begun. By going back to first edition but breaking with these post-1985 tendencies it feels that like I've got turn a little bit closer to what was originally exciting about D&D for me. And it doesn't feel old or like nostalgia. It feels really vibrant and new now. Wish my players luck as they continue to explore the increasingly dangerous subterranean level of the Moat House. <laughs> Greetings, Minion. I just wanted to say thank you for Dak Attack episode two. I really enjoyed listening to your roundup of uh, the event. And I just loved all the little bits of color around Japan, really. Um, and you can talk to me about rodents anytime. That's awesome. I, I just really enjoyed it, man. And I really thank you for taking the time to sort of walk in the streets, talking to us and... Uh, yeah, a window into a world that I, I desperately, desperately would love to walk myself. So thank you. Game on. Thanks, Shay. I can't begin to tell you how much it means to receive messages like this. It helps to know what works and what doesn't. This is something I nabbed off Mr. D. Percentile himself, Dave Aldridge. He always seems to be walking to the shops or in the park. Anyway, I'll be certain to add some more walks and commentary from from Kyoto maybe visiting places of cultural and historical significance or places associated with myth and legend. At some point, I'm sure we'll have to join the discussion on cultural appropriation and who knows, perhaps even examine 
that subject, the divisive one of first edition AD&D book, Oriental Adventures. And that could lead us to some interesting reflections on the flip side of what I suppose we could dub Occidental Adventures. Until next time, this is Menion at Confessions of a Wee Timorous Bushi signing off. Sarawa tomoyo.